Radio's first podcast of Book Choice Team. The work we're discussing is An Imperfect Blessing by Nadia Davids. Our Book Choice teams are grade 10 and 11 learners from Gardens Commercial High and Hertzlia High in Cape Town. We're very honoured that the author herself, Nadia Davids, will be contributing to this discussion remotely. Facilitating the discussion is Hertzlia Headmaster Mark Faulkner. Now we're recording at Hertzlia in their music department, so you will hear the happy sounds of young musicians in the background. Hello Mark. Hello, hello Vanessa and welcome everyone. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Raisa Jacobs. I am 16 and I attend Gardens Commercial High. It's such a pleasure to be with Olivia. Thank you. I'm Amisha Malam and I'm from Gardens Commercial High and I'm 17. I'm Benny Cielo and I'm from Gardens Commercial High School and I'm 17. I'm Leah Benjamin, I'm 15 years old and I go to Hatsleya High School. I'm Ethan Myers, I'm 16 and I also go to Hatsleya High School. Excellent, thanks people. Shall we do the introduction that Nadia has given to yeah. the book now and then we can talk about some, some of those questions. Hello, this is Nadia David speaking. I'm wishing you all a very good morning on this crisp wintry day. I just wanted to send out um, very grateful thanks to Amisha, Leah, Benice, Raiza and Ethan for your very, very thoughtful, careful, insightful questions that invited me to go back to the novel and, and think very carefully and try to remember what some of the impulses were behind writing it. Um, so thank you and I'm, I'm very grateful that you've all spent this time with it and thank you Vanessa for collating the event and for picking the book. Go well, everyone. Great, thank you. That was so nice to have Nadia's voice. So let's start with maybe a, a little synopsis of this beautiful novel, An Imperfect Blessing by Nadia Davids. Um, An Imperfect Blessing is a coming-of-age story that focuses on a Muslim family, um, in this case the Dalwoods, but more specifically the daughter Alia, and it takes place during the end of the apartheid era, and it shows how all of these different groups of people come to terms with that, and it grapples with both politics and family life, and there's also a romantic subplot. There's a lot of intense themes in it, but there's also a lot of humor in it too, and I think it's a really important read for us as South Africans. Great. So how do you find that, that the novel worked? That it's blended the kind of macro transition period as Ethan has said, a coming-of-age novel, and the two, those two stories are blended, the personal and, and the public. How did you find that blending work for you? I felt like it was really insightful, especially learning about how bad it was, mostly, because we get to learn about it from a young person's perspective. Who did you identify with most in this text? I identified most with sure? Nazreen, because she's more chilled, laid-back, and keeps more to herself. And she's closer to my age than Alia is. Yeah. So. And you I, consider yourself to be quite laid back, do you? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Who, any other characters that people around the table identified with? Um, the character I identified the most with is Alia because throughout the book she tries to make sense of her life in a way. And she seems responsible enough, you know. And yes, she has a moment where so she has fun. But at the end of the day, like, she all comes to terms with the world and she realizes that not everything seeing is about having fun. So I feel like she's slightly responsible. Mm. So I feel like I relate with her the most throughout the whole entire book. Yeah, good, good points. How do you think this book, 
particularly after we've dealt with the COVID uh, and lockdown, how do you think this book helps us to connect with each other, with to, to make sense of each other? Do you think we learn more about other communities, about other ways of life, about other visions, having read this book? I do. Yes, Especially because you get um, insight in another person's perspective during, like, while reading the book. The book helps me to connect is um, um, taking everyone's equally, even though um, how different color you are. That you live in a bubble, you know, you, you, you grow up in a particular neighborhood, you, you, and you just believe that that's how the whole world is. When you, you know, when you're 14 or 15 and you've lived like that your whole life and, and you, you can't believe that there's any other experience that, you know, you go to school, you come back from school, you have a piece of banana toast if you live in Natal, you do your homework, play sport or whatever, and then you go to school the next day and that's how your days go and you don't think that there's another kind of reality. And that's how the, that bubble works. And I, I, I suspect that, that it's only if you have opportunities like this, if you have an opportunity to, to think and speak to other people and read. And what you have that we never had is that you have the opportunity to connect with each other immediately anywhere in the world. We never had that. If you want to speak to someone, there was no internet. You had to actually ring them up on a telephone. I thought it was one of those moments if you want to speak to someone that's far away, like... You know, in the medieval times, where they had like this bird, and then you have to write the letter. I thought it was the like pigeon, that. the pigeon. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was like that. Where we put it somewhere, and then the bird just knows where to go. Actually, it was like that. The bird just knows where to go. Unless, yeah, it's the, that is the truth of it. The the bubble that you live in, you don't you take for granted because you've grown up with it, and that's how you that's how you experience life. It certainly wasn't like that for me, so. Looking back, I can see, oh, what a diseased, tortured, wounded world it was. But it didn't seem like that at the time. It, you know, it, it just, that was how life was. And I, I, th I think that's part of the power of the novel is that Nadia captures that. She captures the, the bubble, how these communities lived uh, and lived in, in kind of almost isolation. How does reading a book for a podcast series differ from studying it for exams or reading it for pleasure? Well, I will go reading it for pleasure. The things that they um, say on the book and um, the way the book is, is written, it's actually touched my heart and um, the way the things the children went through and it's really sad um, because they had to like live in like different cultures, they can't like uh, get connected and know each other because, um, because of the skin color and some of the children were um, and, and were not able to see the mm. other children. Mm. Yes. So because mm. of the color, mm. so that makes it different, the huge difference. And other children has to go over poverty and go to school that is not normal, while others have to go to a, a perfect school and the school that is, like, it's good, good education. And, um, yeah. That's beautiful. Do you think that you got more out of it because you had to read the book so well to talk about it? Yes. I'm hoping someone's going to say it, it it's kind of shows up how useless exams are and how useless... I was thinking that... Well, say it, think say it. I should say, I feel like the, 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 there's a difference because reading it for um, your pleasure and for a podcast, it's like more fun than reading it for an exam. So I feel like 
Sometimes it's bullying. So, I mean, surely the, the point that you're making is that if the, the, the kind of reading, the kind of prescribed reading that we do and the silly questions that we have to ask at the end of it spoils the power of the book it's, to some extent. It's like if you force us to do it, then we don't feel like we want to do it, basically. Yeah. It makes it like work. Yeah. It doesn't make it fun, it makes it more work-related and school and educational than reading a book for something like this. So do you think that the reading a book in classes takes the fun out of it? Especially if you're forced, if you like have to read the book for an exam or something, and then it just... So the, the, the power of this book is because you actually chose to read it? Yeah. yeah. Good. Amisha asks, why did you feel the story needed to be told? What was the message you wanted to convey? So Amisha, this is a very interesting question with a great deal of depth because it's asking me to think carefully about what, what it was that prompted this particular piece of work. And I think like all of my work, in some ways, it was prompted by a sense that I never saw myself um, or the lives of people that I loved and knew accurately reflected in literature or in theater. I mean, there were obviously moments when I did see those things, and I don't believe that one has to, you know, map exactly onto the characters that you're reading. Some of the most important reading experiences of my life have been of novels that are of stories of people that are completely different to me in every possible way in terms of their age and their race and their religious orientation and where they come from and the time period that they're living in. But I think that it's very, very important that everybody is represented and reflected in stories. And I thought a lot about Toni Morrison, the American writer, who talked about how she wrote her novels because she wanted to be able to read the novels and stories she wanted to read. She wanted to be able to pick up something and see herself directly addressed in them. And I hadn't seen a piece of work that chronicled this moment from this perspective. And although the story in some ways is about Alia um, and it's about her perspective of being a 14-year-old girl during these incredibly um, kind of heady, joyful, difficult, turbulent moments in the run-up to our first election, and then of course during the tragedies of um, our horrifying states of emergency, it's also very much about Walid and about how as an artist he's and a writer and a witness to so much of what is happening, he's struggling to make sense of the world and to find his place in it and to think about how art and activism can be aligned. So there are lots of entry points for me emotionally in the story and at the heart of it I think I just wanted to write a story about a family who are struggling and trying to make sense of a particular moment and who are who find themselves in astonishing and extraordinary circumstances and how they navigate their way through those moments and to sort of find the ordinary and the quotidian and find ways to celebrate that too. She answered it in a very full way. Do another question? Is there another question? Leah asks, the characters of Alia's parents are some of the strongest parental characters I've ever read. Thank you, Leah. That's very kind. She goes on to say, Zarina in particular was amazing to read as a teenager. Did you base these characters on people in your own life? Well, Leah, yes, I did. I, I pinched Zarina and Adam wholesale from my parents. <laughs> but I have to say that as rounded um, as I tried to make the characters and as much as I tried to write them 
with a measure of, of depth, I don't think I could approach sort of 10% of my own parents' complexity and their depth and how interesting they are as people. So I used them as a kind of, with their permission, as an outline but the fictional characters are very different to my parents in many important ways. You know, as my mother um, pointed out quite soon after she read the novel, that she did not stop my sister and I from going to Chris Honey's memorial. In fact, she encouraged us to do it, even if it meant bunking school. Um, but that was not the, you know, that wouldn't have made good drama for that particular scene. But, you know, on a more serious note, what I was trying to do with the parents, and I think it was a way of me thinking through a very painful thing that... I think every child who grew up under apartheid, every child of colour, every black child grew up under apartheid, understanding that they were growing up in a hyper-militarised, oppressive state where the country was at war with itself, and that their own parents ultimately, and it was a knowledge that I held very early and very deeply, and no one else I know of my age didn't hold this understanding, that their parents were ultimately powerless against the brutality of the state. And that's one of the shocking and awful things that an oppressive regime does. It distorts relationships between people. And I think on reflection, what I wanted to do with the novel was to ask perhaps quite difficult questions um, about what it means to be a parent in a situation like that, in a terrible heartbreaking, difficult situation like that. And of course, these are middle-class parents, so they're not up against anything close to um, the same kinds of horrors as black working-class parents or parents in much more vulnerable situations. And I wanted to ask questions about what it meant to raise children in that context. And I guess I was asking that question before I myself became a parent. Um, but I'm glad that they read us strong and I'm, um, I'm glad that it, it resonated in some way because it is, in lots of ways, it's the view of parents from the perspective of a 14-year-old girl and that's what I was hoping to convey. And, um, yeah, and I, I hope that, they, I, I hope that I, they were allowed to kind of hold some of the funny warmth love and humor that my parents do possess as well that's a beautiful uh, answer and what nadia is doing is i suppose talking a little bit about the whole creation process i mean it's, i suppose it talks about the power of telling stories and how mm. how important it is that we can tell those stories where we get the stories from how we weave it how we make meaning well, let's have another question she's responded so beautifully to these questions Benice says, how did you feel writing the story? Did it bring up a lot of hard and happy memories for you? And did you feel better having written it? Benice, this is a lovely question as well, asking about the kind of emotional world of writing. And then also I think you're asking about whether there was some sort of catharsis or release having written it. So this is interesting because this novel, unlike most everything else I've ever written, was a continuous source of joy to me. So even when there were moments where I was reflecting on very, very difficult times in our country and for our people, um, it, it, was, it gave me a sense of pleasure and joy to go back and to render those moments and to find all those moments of beautiful humanity that flowed between people, even under incredibly difficult circumstances. It gave me a lot of joy to think about the run-up to 
the election um, and that that moments of fever and joy that had gripped the country, even at the same time as things being very intense and, and quite wild at different times. But um, it was lovely to reflect on sort of teenage moments and first loves and arguments and um, dramatic face-offs between siblings. So yes, it was it was both. It was always joyful and always underlined by joy, but it was about kind of having to mine my own life and go back and um, think about, as you say, what was hard and what was happy. And yeah, I did feel better after I had written it, uh, not least of which because I think all writers feel better once they've actually finished the thing, because otherwise it just hangs about you for a really, really long time. And this, this one did take a very long time to write. And there's a question, Nasa, about how long it did take, so I'll save it for then. How do you feel about that answer? Nasa, what do you think? I agree. I, I do. Okay, should we do one more? Razor says, what inspired you to create such an intense storyline and why? Oh, so Reza, you know what? I, I think that I was actually just following the storyline of the country and that were the, that's in so many ways where the intensity came from. So by setting it in sort of both 1986, which of course, as I've said, is, was one of our states of emergencies and an incredibly terrible time. And then the run-up to our first election, which was joyful and optimistic, even as the country went through these incredibly terrifying moments where things were teetering on the edge of oblivion, for example, when Chris Honey was assassinated. That, I think, is really what gives the storyline any kind of intensity. So it's about trying to kind of create that juxtaposition between here's an ordinary family and here they are against the backdrop of utterly extraordinary events and you know what does it mean to live through a time of um amazing political transformation or live through a time when there is utterly catastrophic oppression and that it really is about ordinary people making up these moments and these eras so i just i just followed the spine of the country and it was really against the backdrop of the country of of what what was this family going through against the backdrop of the country and how are the ordinary family dramas playing out against this big, huge national drama? Wow. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it is actually overwhelming. I just love the way she answers, like, the response is amazing. Mm. I just mm. love it. Good, let's have one more. Anisha asks, what specifically made you write from a Cape Malay family's perspective? Was it because you could relate, and if so, how? So the answer is yes, Anisha, I wrote from my own family's perspective, or from my own perspective, and from the community that I grew up in. My father's family is Cape Malay, from different parts of Cape Town, from the Bokap, from District 6, and also from Pal. And my mother's family is also from District 6. Her family is, um, her father's family was from India and her mother's family was from the UK. So I didn't grow up in an exclusively Cape Malay family, but I grew up in what I think of as a very Cape Tonian family because it was extremely diverse. And I grew up in Mormay State, which some of you will know is quite close to District 6. And that particular landscape was incredibly important to me growing up and runs as a sort of a steady through line throughout the novel. So people on both sides of my family were removed from the area. Um, both sides of my family were from that neighborhood. And so this idea of 
belonging to a very specific history in Cape Town, a very difficult and traumatic history of forced removals, was something that I wanted to weave inside the novel. But I also wanted to write a family story about a Muslim family that was ordinary and in its ordinariness and in its loves and difficulties and arguments and um, dramas pushed back at the quite vicious and ugly stereotyping around Muslim people that has gripped the world for a very, very long time and has been the source of incredible destruction and heartbreak. So that was part of what I wanted to do, to think about the ordinariness of family life. I like the bits of details from a personal life. Like how she just included that, then I can see how it just fell in place with the story. It's intense. <laughs> intense is exactly right. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the story is so multi-layered. I mean, she's, yeah. she's talking about uh, Islamophobia, she's talking about you know, kind of world, world opinions, she's talking about South Africa, and, and of course she's talking about her own, her own personal, her family life and her own personal life. It's, um, it is a remarkable concertina of, of things happening in, in, one, in one novel. Benice says, how old were you when you wrote this book? Mm. Benice, I started when I was 29, and I think I was doing the final edits at around 34. So it took a long time, actually. It was about five years or four years of writing on the book. And part of the reason that it took me as long as it did, I think, was because I started a full-time job in the UK, and it was very difficult to write and work full-time at that point. But, you know, I think this is an interesting question in other ways because I also wrote the book before I myself became a parent but I was writing about parents I think in a way to try and understand them so I was writing in a kind of an in-between stage in my own life and so maybe there's something of that in-betweenness in the novel. She should be a writer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean what, I, what I'm loving about her answers is how her writing is explaining her, her making meaning. She's kind of understanding stuff by writing. The process yeah. of writing mm -hmm. is allowing her to, to own it, to capture it, to articulate it, to make sense of it, to sort of understand cause and effect, to, you know, just to contain the tumultuous personal upheaval, cultural upheaval and, and political upheaval that was happening at the time. She, she manages to, well, she kind of finds her way to own it. And, and that's, I think that's how powerful reading can be and it's how powerful writing can be and certainly how powerful language can be. So Ethan says, the book goes into a great deal on culture and society in the final years of the apartheid era. How do you think society has changed in the years since, and do you think there are improvements that still need to be made? So Ethan, this is a very clever question, because of course you're asking me about past, present, and future all in one go. The past, um, what things were like in that moment before apartheid ended, uh, how things are now and what could possibly shift going into the future. So, of course, the most beautiful and wonderful thing that we have is a democracy that sometimes, you know, things are a little bit shaky in the country, but the democracy is still functioning and intact. Um, one of the benefits, of course, just in terms of the everyday and at a cultural and political level is that we are far less insular than we used to be because insularity can be very, very dangerous. But, of course... Um, the improvements are, you know, we're very far from what the promise and the hope and the dream was. And the improvements are 
no different, I think, than, than any other um, person who lives in the country and understands it would, would say, which is to say that there has to be um, economic empowerment for all our people. There has to be equal access to education, to housing, to food, to all the fundamental things that go into having a society that is decent and kind and um, concerned with its fellow citizen. And so those are the things that I would like to see. And as a writer, you know, my very, very tiny part in trying to, to push for that is just to keep trying to fashion those ideas and craft those ideas into text. But, yeah, thank you all so much. Go well. Nadia, this is a message to you when one day you'll be listening to this podcast. We're all sitting around a table with our masks on, and I wish you could see the eyes of the learners. As you answer their question, they sparkle up like diamonds. It's beautiful. You can actually see the smile beneath the mask. You can see the mask stretching into a beautiful smile. So it's been very, very meaningful for us to listen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank, and thanks Vanessa for all the hard work in putting this together, and thank you to each one of you for for reading, for um, for participating so fully and actively and, um, and in, in such an engaged way, and thanks for being here now today and, and taking part in this, and now I'm going to offer you the most delicious cup of tea you've ever had. <laughs> um, Amisha, do you want to start? Yeah. A quote I really like from the book is on page 404 in Alia's letter to me. And I quote, He says the hope is that everyone will see and do something, not just see and learn to live with it. So most people are aware of certain things happening around us, good or bad, and don't say or do anything about it, basically. They just accept it as the normal, normality, <laughs> and continue their lives. We should learn to stand up for what is right and stand together to correct what is wrong. Will it be in our daily lives or whenever? Denise, do you want to? I admired the section where Alia met up with a closer girl at school and she was from Kailincha. The most precious part was how humble Alia was towards the girl. Alia wasn't mean to her. She was very nice and did not cause any drama that was going to hurt her. And I love the fact that Alia was, was very respectful to her and treated her equally as she did to her friends. She did not make any difference, but she was there to show her love and make her feel important, no matter how black she was. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thanks, Penice. Yeah. Leah, would you like to read yours? Um, okay. Um, so I chose a quote which is from the very end of the book. Um, and he goes, at the end of the reading, he raises his hands to show he's finished. But one, from where she's standing, Alia thinks it's a blessing. I admired the section where Nazarene wanted to attend mosque with her father, but he simply declined because girls are supposed to be where all the women are, and then Alia simply asked her what is wrong, and Nazarene replied, and I quote, pushing boundaries. That's the only way to change things. You ask for more than they'll give, but as much as you deserve. And for me, that quote showed me that Nazarene is actually more intelligent than she lets on. It also makes readers realize that this era affected teens as much as it affected mm -hmm. adults. Mm -hmm. um, I picked this section because it made me laugh, and I thought that it was a nice bit of comic relief in between some of the more intense things going on in the book. And um, the passage is, Alia spied Mikhail coming towards them. 
Unlike almost everyone else, he didn't have to fight to get through the crowd. He had that special gift of being able to attract and repel people at whim. They parted as he stalked through, improvising moves to accommodate his path as if they were the chorus line in a Broadway show and he was the overpaid lead. When Ali had tried to explain it to Nazreen later, it's like he has this private magnetic force field or something. Her sister snorted, saying, it's called being popular. I thought it was Well, to our book choice teens, you have been a perfect blessing. Yay! Thanks to Penguin Random House for sponsoring each learner with a copy of the book. Thanks to our fantastic educators, Gardens Commercials, Shamia Abrams and Hertzler's Mark Faulkner. Thank you to our sound engineers from Hertzler, the multi-talented teacher, musician, rock star, David Watkins, and from Fine Music Radio, our fabulous Mwande Lobi. I'm Vanessa Levenstein. You've been listening to a Fine Music Radio Book Choice Team podcast as part of Fine Music Radio's Book Choice.